I'm Peyton, and this is the Rhizomatic Reader. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Michael Hilliard about Peter Hessler's book, Rivertown, Two Years on the Yangtze. You can find an edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Yes, I am doing great. Um, getting ready for school, just like you. Next week we start. I thought you all might have started this week. So I was kind of mad at myself because I had wanted to read this book at the end of July um, or in the middle of July, but it kind of got sidetracked. So like last weekend I said, oh, I've really got to get this read. And uh, so that uh, Mike doesn't uh, flee the coop, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. No, I've been looking forward to this all summer. Actually, this has been something that's kind of interesting that it, that it comes right now. Like I literally start tomorrow. I have to show up for faculty meetings starting tomorrow, uh, a week before school begins. And so this was, I mean, perfect timing. You didn't even know that you set it up and here it is. So here it is. You know. That's right. Yeah. So how are yeah. you doing? Just uh, as well as I can be. I mean, you know, I've enjoyed, uh, you know, this, uh, seeing how you're doing this, just seeing this experience that you're having, uh, and, and, and this podcast and how you run it. It was kind of interesting. I've never done anything like this. And so you, you had the questionnaire was pretty, pretty interesting to kind of go through and you're like, Oh, you know, I actually have to go through. So I, 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 I marked, I mean, I, I usually mark along in books, but this time it was a little more, um, you know, purposeful, I suppose, not just reflective. So, uh, it's been it's been fun it's been good to anticipate this so yeah Yeah, good well I'm really excited actually because you're like the first person to come onto the podcast who I literally have never met a lot of the other people (laughs) you know the idea here I don't know if you've listened to the series or not but the idea is that you know we want to build these webs of readers and try to connect books that wouldn't normally be in conversation across, you know, space and time is what I say. And up to this point, uh, most everybody that I've talked to, well, everybody that I've talked to are people that I know in some form or fashion. So we're now getting into this part that I'm really excited about, which is meeting new people. And, you know, in general, the, the good part of the podcast has been that I've just read so many books already that I would have never picked up. (laughs) Um, if, if I hadn't have started this project. So thanks for coming on and agreeing to do it and responding to Rick's email. Cause well, you know, how, you know, Rick, you guys know each no, other from his days down at uh, St. Thomas. Yeah. I know a little bit before then, actually, I worked uh, for Rick at uh, Texas A&M at Galveston. So uh, oh, I was yeah. one of his advisors and I did a freshman level uh, study skills course for him. And uh, yeah, that's where we met. And uh it was uh, love at first sight, as they say. I mean, at least for me, I enjoyed every minute I had with him. He was uh, he was fun. He's lighthearted. He's smart. He's mm-hmm. just witty. He's just he's dedicated to his running. I mean, on top of everything, there are these these things you don't know about him if you don't know him that make him such an interesting interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was when he. We've always kept in touch over the years, but it's sort of been just random stuff like, hey, let's have a you know, let's have a little meeting, a Zoom meeting sometime or something. And we've had a hard time connecting because we're both on different schedules. We were, but now that I'm stateside again, it's, um, it's a little easier. So, you know, yeah, it's just, 
same as same as you, I suppose, professionally first. And then I guess personally, are you guys uh, you guys friends now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, he's my faculty colleague, but but we've become really good friends over the past yeah. six years. And, you know, I agree with you. He's he's really smart. He's really passionate about education and and life, um, you know, super inquisitive. And, you know, I, I'm enjoying watching him go through this kind of period in his life where he's reconnecting with his spirituality and, and starting to, you know, think about, um, you know, some really big questions in education around the role of spirituality and, and the role of study and learning as, as foundational to, you know, education writ large. And so he's, he's great. Um, just a, just a good person all the way around. So, yeah. And you come highly recommended and well spoken from him as well. So that's the I think it's I think that's why I ask you all because it seems like y'all would be, you know, a natural sort of match as well. It just seems that way because, you know, from what he said, from what I from what I've heard and everything, just yeah, I can see you two over there just talking in the hallways forever. So oh yeah, we <laughs> we we were just on a Zoom yesterday actually with another colleague and we we had been reading a book together this summer. Uh, on uh, race and in education. And we ended up having like a, you know, we were scheduled for an hour yesterday and we talked for three hours, you know, it's oh, just wow. one of those things that, you know, you just can keep talking about stuff. So did you record it? Please tell me you recorded. It. No, we didn't. I mean, you know, I didn't really anticipate that it was going to do that, but yeah. um, you know, the, the same kinds of stuff came up. I mean, most of the conversation actually, aside from the stuff that we were talking about with race was really just about like this time we're living in and just how complicated it is to navigate personally and professionally what you're supposed to be doing. But um, I'm sure that's true in K-12 too. I just can't imagine. I don't want to imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, different life stages, they have different issues and different thoughts. And I mean, the the ones that that you're dealing with, um, are you teaching graduate courses or undergraduate courses or both? Yeah, I I teach all graduate courses. So all graduates. So yeah, they're definitely a different place than um, the undergrads or the K through 12 guys. So, and gals. So it's kind of, you know, obviously, yeah, it's the same thing. It's all there, but just different and, and how they process and everything. So I just, the idea of race and education, especially, or culture and education specifically, to me is an interesting field because, I mean, that's why actually you said that. And here I am looking at Rivertown and thinking about the entire, the embodiment of this book and what it meant. And it's it's sort of like that ties right into y'all's conversation directly in many ways. And, and, and it became, this book was a teacher to me long before I knew it would be so you know. Yeah. So I, I gather, and I, you know, I need to know more about this. You spent time in China or you were abroad. How did you even come? I, I almost don't want to start the conversation about the book without asking you about reading, but, but maybe just some background and then we'll go to reading and then we'll get back to the book. I, I, it's, it's smart. Cause it's circling them back would be important. Cause knowing what happened. Yeah. I was there. For, I lived there for 10 years, as a matter of fact. So um, when I, uh, I was working for Rick, as a matter of fact, at A&M and was just falling in love with being an educator. Um, I had already taught at that point for a couple of years in China uh, when I started working for him. And then I just decided, Hey, you know, it just, that's, that was a calling at that age. And at that point in time was to go back and do that. Um, 
So I ended up living there a total of 10 years, uh, came back twice, um, in between those 10 years. So it was, it was broken up, but, um, but yeah, I was, a uh, the whole time I taught just about every age level, like I said there, I mean, I've taught kindergarten kids, I've taught university students, uh, and just about everything except for high school students in between. So, yeah. So, uh, which part of China were you living in or did you live in multiple parts? I lived in multiple parts. Uh, I started off in the East coast as most would. It's kind of like a dipping your toe in the pool. If you would, you know, if you've been to the East coast of China, if you've been to Shanghai or any of those areas, it's sort of, it's your, it's your metropolitan area. You know, there's people of all kinds of, uh, of backgrounds there. Um, and then I eventually, the first job I actually took after my training was down near the border of Vietnam. So that was the big shock was when I went down there and was kind of thrown into a whole different environment. Um, but had some really unique experiences and then ended up back on the East coast again, uh, before heading back to the U S and then the second time around, I moved to central part of China. So I've lived in the central, the South and the Eastern part. So now what even initially got you interested in going over there? You were, well, is it kind of like Peter's story? You were a Peace Corps person or you were doing it for some other reason? It's, it's funny because I never knew this, but looking back, I was absolutely obsessed with Asian culture when I was growing up and didn't even, I mean, there were, there were, there were signs people, my family ever since then has reminded me of things since I first went to China. It was almost like things were pointing that way all along for me. Um, but one of the main things was I wanted to get an education. I was about to get my teacher certificate, actually my teaching certificate here to teach in uh, K-12 in the U S and before I got into the program and paid, I wanted to make sure that, um, teaching was something I really wanted to do because I had been a journalist. So I graduated with a communication degree, immediately went to writing, being a city reporter and just absolutely hated it. <laughs> I just, I, it just, I'm not pushy enough and everything to get in there to battle for interview. I just, it was too much for me. And I thought, you know, I'm a little more on this side of things. Um, but I didn't know where to go to just sort of like, can I just go teach and find out if I like it first before I walk into another failure like that? And, um, Actually, I wanted to go to Japan. It was uh, it wasn't long after the Nagano Olympics in in that time, and I thought, and of course, I was living in a ski resort, so I thought, hey, I'll go teach and ski in Japan in Nagano, and that'd be great, and it sounded like a good thing. But the school I wanted to go to required uh, two thousand plus classroom hours before I could even apply for a job. Um, so I found out that China allowed you, if you had a bachelor's degree, uh, come over, get your teacher of English as a foreign language certificate, and start teaching. And then I just fell in love with China. I just, I, I stayed there. So, so was, you actually have a degree from a Chinese university then? Am I understanding that correctly? I actually, it's just a certificate. It's a certificate through a program that uh, teaches us how to be, basically how to be English teachers. You know, they're obviously it's our native language and it's their foreign language. And you've got to really just learn how to speak and approach the students in a situation where sometimes they are, they're, they're total beginners. Um, but we want to teach them in the direct method. We want them fully immersed as though they are living in the United States themselves. And so, um, yeah, it's, that was, I had to go and just study for basically, it was just a month long study program. I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you also have to learn Chinese or was it really like Peter describes where (laughs) you are just speaking in English and hoping that the students are going to understand you and pick it up as time goes on? Right. And at different levels of their educational uh, attainment that, you know, it's, it's a different experience because they, 
uh, the Chinese actually began learning nowadays or actually starting probably 20 years ago, they started learning English. They start learning at kindergarten level. So they'll do some basic vocabulary, but throughout their entire 12 years of education, they're doing uh, English. So if once you get to the university level and teach, it's more discussion based. It's more trying to sort of polish off the rough corners. Um, for some, they're still very much beginners, uh, but that's, you know, how that can be in, in education. I mean, some just fall through and some rise to the top and, but at the middle school level, it's it's somewhere in between. They have a basic foundational knowledge. So I am not allowed to speak Chinese in the classroom to them, even if I speak Chinese. So it wasn't a requirement um, mm -hmm. and it was dissuaded. You know, I mean, we were um, I, I wouldn't say we, and I never used it rarely, only in moments where I had to use uh, disciplinary moments that I actually used Chinese. Mm -hmm. So otherwise it had to be, and that was supposed to be in English as well, but sometimes it was just easier to get them to understand um, if you, if you spoke their language and they took you a little more seriously. So if you did. So um, just because I'm fascinated by this whole idea of bilingual education, is it kind of compulsory that students in China, you say everyone's learning English. Is that like part of the, educational foundations of the country or by saying everybody you're saying there's a large swath of people that are learning English as a second language. Everyone who has access to a school where they have the trained personnel to do so uh, is learning English. Um, every, everyone is. I, I, maybe in the, even in a lot of the rural uh, counties mm -hmm. um, and I'm, we're talking extreme um, poverty, uh, we're talking about uh, a lack of facilities that we in the developed world would consider to be just almost a, a bygone thought at this point. Those, even there, they have a lot of times some English teaching, but for the most part, that would be the only place where it, it wouldn't be found because they are required to take a test before going into university that actually tests their English ability as well. So it's taken as seriously as a science, math, uh, even even Chinese itself. So English is one of the four or five big uh, main subjects that they would take over there. Hmm. It's an extreme commitment to um, to doing what I think is the main goals of um, I think the uh, the CCP, but also uh, just the um, the general population at large who want to compete in business, law, medicine, science, and all that. So, why do you think English? I mean, I know that it's you know, spoken by many, you know, it's spoken in the US and Britain and other parts of the world. But I've always been fascinated by this English obsession that we have around the world uh, and, and not a focus on other languages that maybe are spoken even more than English or might be spoken by populations that are larger than the English speaking world. Right. And I think that the main answer for that comes down to the, the really the Chinese persona or their sort of psyche, as it were, because they see the United States and England as big dogs. Right. I mean, they're the, the business leaders they are the financial leaders or the, the leaders in medicine and law and even politically global, uh, you know, globally, as far as global politics is concerned, they these are two countries that pull a large amount of weight. And I think that for the most part, the Chinese want to be able to compete on the same playing field. Um, one thing about them is they're not uh, the, the population at large, and especially those who are um, who pay attention to these issues is 
they really want to be able to step in the arena and compete. It's not about, oh, well, the United States, they're so wealthy, they're so powerful, we should cow and fear. They don't. Instead, they say, let me jump in there and I want to, you know, I want to tussle. I want to, you know, I want to be a part of it. I want to compete. And um, it, which is an interesting, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's an interesting um, a, a, a characteristic actually of, of the Chinese. And you, I think in Rivertown, um, you don't see it as much uh, because uh, while you're there, he was so busy with everything. But in, in reality, that's, that's how, how much I, I got from the college students and everybody else was that, Hey, we want to be as good. We want to be as important. We want to be as big. We want to compete with the United States. So studying English is the way to say, you don't have this advantage over me because I speak your language. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I'm fascinated by it for several reasons. I mean, one is that, you know, we just don't have that mentality in the United States. Like we're so arrogant in the U S that we think, you know, everyone needs to do the things that we do. And so they should learn English and we would never, or I think very few people would have the attitude or disposition that, you know, let me learn Mandarin Chinese so that I can compete with an up and coming global <laughs> economic and military superpower. You know, we just would never think about that in the U S I guess the other reason is, is because this summer I actually did a little experiment. I, I've always wanted to learn French. And so I enrolled in a French course this summer and at, at the community college here in, in Houston. And um, I just found it insanely difficult to learn French. Um, I just think it's a very complicated language. So I, yeah. so I was like, if that's complicated, I can't imagine trying to learn Chinese, which is you know, a tonal language and is also, you know, in terms of writing is based not on the phonetic alphabet, but is actually based on characters and all this kind of stuff. And Peter, of course, talks about, you know, his tutoring in Chinese throughout the <laughs> book. So um, I just, I, I think our lack of bilingual education in general in the U.S. is just, it's always troubled me. And I just I, think I, it puts us at such a disadvantage, um, regardless of what the language is. Agreed 100% on that. I don't know why we're not committing more resources to it, um, except to say that everyone else in the world is kind of, it's kind of like when, when everyone else is bringing you platters of food, you don't actually have to go out and gather your food. You know, it's, I think that's kind of the way it is right now is as long as, you know, the Japanese and the Chinese and the Koreans and the Russians and everyone is studying English, we feel like, well, you're going to study my language and come to me. Why do I need to meet you on anything? You're coming to, to and in fact, it, I think in many ways, and I'm not certain that this is necessarily the strategy, but people may feel like, hey, that's our advantage in a way is you're in my, you know, my home turf here is we're speaking in a language that I understand the nuances of. Um, but it's not, not always the case. Um, and going back to what you were saying, I think that the reason it becomes hard is we have not been immersed in, in anything here in the United States because we are a big country. And, and even though there's a lot of diversity, you don't find it common. In Houston, you have a great Chinese community down there. I think it's off of Bel Air, I believe, and mm -hmm. been down there. And, and it's, it's a, that's almost an immersive experience. It can be if you want it to be, but I think people might find it odd in the U S if you did it, just trying to, you know, go down and try to just have dialogues with people. They might be like, what's wrong with you? You know, I'm, I'm shopping for my groceries and taking care of my banking, whatever. Um, but 
it changes when you are in the country. So learning French may be easier when you're forced to learn it. And also when it's, it's all around you. So you're, you're more, you're, it's true. You start thinking in that language versus trying to translate in the language. And that, and that's where it becomes exceedingly difficult. Yeah, I mean, when I was in college, you know, I took Spanish and at my university, everybody had to take two years of a foreign language and you had to pass a proficiency test. So I had, of course, taken Spanish. And the way that I learned it was one of the things that uh, my university offered was this kind of immersion. You could take a semester or two semesters and you could take literally 12 credits of, mm. of the language um, and it would, that, that would be your only class for the semester. And you would literally be in class, you know, eight hours a day, and then you would do oh. homework. And that's how I learned Spanish. Because if I had to do it the way that I tried to learn French, it, w- it wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, you know, and now I've lost the Spanish, of course, because I haven't used it in <laughs> 20 years. But, but at the time, I was like, oh, this is the only way that you can actually do it. Um, which I think is true for, you know, Peter and do you feel like you picked up a lot of Chinese while you were there or people were really more talking to you in English? Oh, no. See, well, that's the advantage. I, I think the first time around, I spent my first year before I came back. I had a one-year contract. I went over um, and I was really involved with the expat community there. So uh, there were, uh, I believe, four other foreign teachers just at the middle school where I taught alone. So I mean, it, was, it, was, uh, it was completely different. Um, and, and, and also it was, um, not what, what, what I intended to do. I didn't expect that. I thought I was going to a small town and anyway, I, I had uh, a lot of friends. And so it was basically just Americans living abroad, almost as if we were college students. I was 27. And, um, so I didn't have to use much, but I did learn as much as I could there. So I studied a lot on my own, just basic stuff. I wanted to be able to go out and travel on my own. I enjoyed one of the things that Peter talks about in the book a lot is how he would explore different parts of Fuling um, and other areas. And, and that's actually what I found to be the most pleasing part of the experience too, was just, I would ride, I would ride my bike though. I would ride a bike out, just take a highway and just, just go and ride as long as I could. And then just hook it into some village somewhere and start riding through the village and just go watch the people and look around and try to talk to them. But like he said in the book, there are dialects, um, many different dialects and people mm-hmm. don't, they genuinely do not understand each other. If that's all they speak is the dialect. So this was a small town that I studied in, uh, or I'm sorry, that I taught in. And there was one side of the town and there was the other side of the town. There were two villages, which sort of eventually became the town, but they spoke a completely different form of Chinese from each other. And they were two miles, two miles apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's insane. It's insane. And they're brought together by, uh, by Mandarin Chinese. I mean, Putonghua, as they call it, the, is the, is the language that (laughs) it sort of brings everybody together. And that's why now they, they, of course they study it in school and everything. So Okay, so um, I'm really glad that we're going to be able to talk about this. But before we really dive into like the intricacies of the book, which is just so wonderful, um, I one of the things that got me interested in doing this podcast and just that I'm fascinated by is the history of people's reading lives. So I always ask people to talk to me about this broad question of how do you think about the history of your reading life? Or if I ask you a question like that, what does it make you think about? There is, 
a, a, a this sort of a BC uh, or a BR. We'll call it BR before reading. And I mean that in a serious way. Mm. And then there's the, the AR, the after reading, which has it all. I remember exactly when it was. Um, I was at Southwestern University where I got my bachelor's from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had been reading a lot of philosophy at that point. As a comm major, I studied a lot of rhetorical theory. We studied a lot of classical uh, philosophy, a lot of ancient Greece and stuff. And, and I just really got into reading it to the point to where I was always looking for a new perspective. I started to read Rousseau. I started to read Marx. I started to read um, just about any philosopher, Kant and human, anybody that I could get my hands on, I wanted to read it. And so a little experience here, I'll tell you just real quick. I was at the library one day and this was after nine 11. Um, and I was at the library at Southwestern and I had never ventured into this back area of this library before. And there was a little door and it was a, it was a tiny little door. And, and I didn't know what it didn't have a sign. There was nothing to it, nothing marked for all I knew it was locked. So I decided to go and, and check it. It was unlocked. I didn't know this about the university. None of the uh, recruiters or anybody told me, I walked into this it was their rare book collection library. It was in this mm. really dark room. And all it has was, and of course, Southwestern is a Methodist school. So this is sort of a, they had this large stained glass window and the light was coming through. Every afternoon I started going into this little place and I would sit there and pick up one of these old books. I had no idea who they were and just started reading. I would just mm. open it up and started reading. And I found more pleasure in that for many reasons where I was in my life. Mm-hmm. I found more pleasure in that experience than I ever thought possible. And it really started my serious reading life. And mm-hmm. I went from being just someone who had to read for school or I read for fun to someone who read for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And reading then after that, I would say that reading began to guide my professional life mm-hmm. rather than my professional life dictating what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. And so I would read something and that's where Rivertown came in is because I read the book and it pushed me into a different direction. And here we are in 2021, 17 years later, uh, 18 after I read the book, 18 years later. And it, I look back now and say, this book, I literally spent 10 years in China because of this book. Okay. So, so oh, I, you know, I had a similar experience in college, not finding a rare reading room, but just like these libraries, libraries are so important. Um, what did you discover? Like, do you remember what you were reading in the rare books room? Like, do you remember anything about, you know, this, this is the first time I read that and whatever the case is. I do. It was the social contract. Jean-Jacques Rousseau it was the first thing I picked wow. up and I ended up reading uh, probably three quarters of that book before uh, I eventually the room got locked. I don't know if somebody figured out if somebody saw me going in uh, because it was behind the stacks. I mean, this door yeah. was behind the stacks in a way. Again, it was a it's a random place. I just couldn't believe it was there and that nobody knew about it. And uh, it was dusty and it just smelled of must and, you know, old text. Old and it was, yeah. Yeah. It was great. So like, you know, yeah. So um, I, I remember who that's, that was my introduction to Rousseau because I had been reading philosophy, but nobody ever told me about Rousseau. I wasn't studying that period. I wasn't studying the French and you know, enlightenment or the French revolution or anything. So none of the, 
Victor Hugo's or Rousseau came into my being. It was mm-hmm. mostly ancient. I Socrates, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These are the guys mostly that I was focused on. And so this took me into a whole different direction. And naturally you read Rousseau, you read Marx, you start reading into some other things you go into and next thing you know, you're in China. <laughs> so, you know, um, seemed like a natural progression, I guess, right? I mean, looking back on it, but well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> in some ways, I mean, maybe it's a natural progression. So, so you read Rivertown, right. you you found Rivertown, and then that's what led you to China, right? So, um, I was at um, working in Winter Park at a ski resort. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I said, I was a journalist who has uh, was trying to rehabilitate. Um, I'd had differences with my editor. I realize now that you don't get to control what you write as a reporter, but you mm. just put the work in and then your editor decides to uh, carve it up how he or she wants. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up, and you just take the fluff for it after that. So, um, mm-hmm. or the flack, I should say. For that. And uh, where's Winter Park? Cause I'm not familiar. In Colorado. In Colorado. Colorado. Okay. Right. So you so, got stationed there. You were working for a paper or something. Not at all. I went there just to write. I was a poet, um, wanting to be an aspiring poet, inspiring. I still loved writing and I still wanted to continue just uh, my reflections. And I was young enough to just say, hey, I do want to follow my passions. And but it was a place that just allowed me to 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 work, uh, but enjoy my time after I worked. Um, mm-hmm. based, essentially no responsibility afterwards. Um, and the mountains are just an uh, inspirational you know, place. It's a backdrop to anything in life as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. so um, I was, I went to a library. I mean, it was, you know, winter park, it's covered in snow. And I went to a library one afternoon and um, was checking out books. I got my card there. And I think one of the first books that I checked out was Rivertown. And I took it back to my, um, I shared a house with five other boys, five other guys. And uh, I went back and I read it and, um, I just decided from then on, I was going to China. Uh huh. Okay. So one of the things you said a few minutes ago was that you said you, you know, this before reading and after reading. So your, your reading life starts to take on this very serious nature. And I think you said you started letting reading guide your professional life rather than your professional life guide your reading. What do you see as the distinction there? Um, purpose, intention, passion. Uh, you know, right now, I think in a, in a way I look at, at um, our situations, both as educators, right? So a lot yeah. of times you may have to follow along with the journals, a lot of the research having to do with learning, psychology of learning, the sociology of the classroom, the philosophy behind how to get messages, whatever it may be. And we, we do that and we enjoy doing that. I, I do it as well. I try to do it more for obviously the adolescents, the 13, 14 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I do for my profession. And it's, and that's what I think most people, when they become adults, they, they read material mm-hmm. they need to read to be better at their job or to keep up with the research or to keep up with whatever, um, is, is, is going to help them make more money or be more successful. In this case, it was reading was telling me, I you looked at it as reading was a way that guided my path. And I just felt like in many ways, God would put this uh, text in front of me mm. and mm. inspire me. Mm. And I just follow along. And um, mm. that has been the case ever since I read Rousseau in that library that day, mm-hmm. how I feel about society, how I feel about um, 
uh, well, especially American society, it was a, an introduction to a different way of thinking about society and how people live and how people treat each other and what our obligations ought to be. And he was a Christian man as well. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, it led to this and it led to that. And now I just continue to, to, you know, to do that. Um, you know, there's a, um, there's after September 11th, in fact, it was, and I'm not sure if this is going to affect, but, uh, can you still see me on the camera right now? No, it's just the M, but I don't, it's okay. If you're looking something up or whatever, that's fine. I just wanted to quote something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just in fact took a book. So I, I think this will, I think this will be okay. Um, but it's Isaiah. I, in fact, I'll just point it. It's Isaiah 26, 20. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll put this here, go my people enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See the Lord is coming out his dwelling to punish the people of their earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. And I think about um, September 11th and maybe all the sins of the American society and the things, the ways that we've abused a lot of things, the planet, the people, uh, different things. And to me, that was, Sort of like, so I went and shut the door literally in a library room and closed and started to read. Um, you were in that college was, in 2001 or? I, I was in college. Yeah. I was sure. at a library, as a matter of fact, when September 11th happened. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll never, I'll never forget the morning of September 11th. We, um, just to, you know, the conversations always go where they go, but. I, I had an early class that morning. I had a two-hour seminar on um, Victorian poetry. And so we went into class at 8 a.m. and came out two hours later. And literally in that two hours, um, you know, everything shifted. And nobody had come and told us anything, right? Like, we, I just remember viscerally coming... For, first of all, I remember the poem that we were reading that day and we were, it's Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam, which is a poem about the sudden loss of a loved one, uh, like a friend, right? Oh, wow. And uh, like an unexpected loss of a friend and how you go through the grieving process. So we had spent this two hours talking about that poem and then we come out and I just remember walking onto the mall from the main campus building and there were just people running everywhere and crying and it was very confusing um, because I lived in Minneapolis at the time and the university had decided to um, shut things down because we were right next to downtown and they were afraid, you know, at that point that there was going to be an attack on the city of Minneapolis because nobody knew what was going on. Because at that point, the towers had collapsed, the Pentagon had been attacked and you know they were trying to ground all the airplanes. So I'll never forget it because that po- it, it, it's exactly like what you say when you say like books or poems or things just come to you like when they're supposed to come to you and you just have to trust the universe. I mean, we were reading that poem about sudden loss and then like obviously all these people had died wow. so quickly and it, it's just, um, wow. It's, it's incredible, which it, you know, speaking of that, it also ties to the Hessler book. I mean, one of the things I loved the most in this book was his discussions on literature, (laughs) poetry. Um, It's, it's, all of that is so beautiful. So I had another question for you that I, 
Oh, so like now, you know, when you're saying like you read things and it's influencing your professional life or maybe your personal life, do you just allow books to come to you or are you actually quite intentional now about what it is that you're going to read? I'm still, I'm, I'm very intentional about I read, but about what I'm going to read um, or about what I read. But, and you know, sometimes when you just crack open a book, one of the best things to do is just open a book randomly in the spot and start reading mm. um, because of the way that writers are um, trained to write. Sometimes just the best thing is just to get straight in like you would in a conversation where you go, excuse me, what were y'all just talking about? You know, sometimes that's the most part because it catches your attention. And if you'll go and just crack open a book in the middle and start reading, then you can go back and be like, yeah, I want to read this. And that's something that either it grabs you or it doesn't. And I think that just like that conversation, if you're not, if you're not interested in when, when you're reading the meat of it, you're not going to be interested reading the intro. You're not going to be interested in mm-hmm. reading the conclusion. You need to dive right in and see. And, and again, that's one of those, because when you are just reading for passion and you're just reading to find a message or to find a way uh, of, of changing your thought or being challenged uh, intellectually, you know, that's the way to do it. As opposed to where, if you genuinely need to learn something, yes, you have to read from the beginning, but that's, that's kind of how I do. I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of books that I do like that, but some of them just come about. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know how it is almost like a light beaming down on something and you're just like, no, that's weird that it's right there at that point. Let me go, let me go see. Um, what have you been reading of late that is like in either of those categories? Like you just flipped it open and you're like, this is something I need to read or the light shining down on this particular thing. Yeah. And you know, it actually, it's uh, the splendid and the vile by Eric Larson. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a, mm-hmm. and I have not really had the chance. There's, there are actually two books that I'm doing and I keep them in two different rooms and I spend a lot of time in those rooms. And when I'm wanting a brain break, I read, I'll just pick up these books and start reading. And I really need to go back to the beginning and start reading them, uh, it, you know, in their entirety, because I'm very interested in both of them, but one of them is the splendid and the vile. And it's about um, the uh, it's about the, the blitz over, uh, over London during world war two. And it talks about the pilot. It was trained by the German Luftwaffe and, and, and every just their personalities. It's just kind of what I've seen so far is the reaction and what happened and the, the, just the absolute um, tyranny and destruction and um, just the unfortunate happenstance of, of that, how it came to that. But the other one actually um, it's actually in another room and I, I can't remember the title, so I'm not going to bring it up. I, I can't remember it, but it was, it's actually really interesting too. It has to do with the, the cold war as a matter of fact. So, um, okay. So you're into kind of these war books right now. History, inter- you know, <laughs> history, international politics, international history. I'm sitting here looking at Odd Men Out, which was about Stalin, Truman, and Mao. Was one of my favorite books to read in the last uh, 15 years. Um, not exactly one of those books you read before bed. I mean, you you think you go, but I mean, for me, it's like I want to know, and that actually goes back, believe it or not, to China. To ties back into the whole original thing here because I used to have to lecture in front of the. Um, the Chinese students and these, the classrooms in China were, now I don't know how big your graduate classes are. Um, I know there are some undergraduate level courses, obviously at university, they get quite large, but for mine, they were ranging usually around, it'd be anywhere from 40 to 65 students mm. in the lecture hall. So they're big. And 
They're big they're classes. Pretty, they're pretty big. And I taught American literature. I taught um, writing and I typically would do an oral English class as well. I always had to do an oral English, but we would get onto topics sometimes. And one of the topics we got onto was the Korean War mm-hmm. um, or the one they call the war against American. Um, yeah, uh, I have it written down. They call it. Hold on. I'm going to find War of American right. aggression against Korea or something like that. If no, you can find it. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's it's. I'm really glad that you brought it up because this is one of the reasons I like reading books like this because you get a different perspective. And I did, I did write down exactly what it is, but now let me just, um, in China, the Korean war is known as the war of resistance against the Americans and in support of the Koreans. There you go (laughs) on page 146. No, I love it because it reminds me of like when I lived in Baton Rouge and I would go to the state capitol and they would talk about the Civil War and when the Union troops came down the Mississippi River to invade uh, Baton Rouge. And they still in Baton Rouge call it the War of Northern Aggression. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something? It is something. Just a psychology of a people. Yes. Right. I mean, that's it. And it's the same thing here. He says it in this book, and I didn't it didn't stand out to me at the time when I read this because how would it? Why would it? It wouldn't yeah. matter. But in 2003, in my little my little rental house in Colorado, it meant nothing to me. Some years later, I think when did I teach at the university? I taught at Henan University of Science and Technology in 2008. Four years later, I'm standing there, and I got students throwing things at me because we're talking about the Korean War, and I naively thought that I could have an honest conversation, mm. not realizing that it was all my perspective as that union force, not as the Baton Rouge people and realizing, uh Oh, I stepped on a landmine. They're really mad. They're going to tear me to pieces in this classroom. Mm-hmm. And I realized immediately I better start educating myself more about history and about politics. If I'm going to get into it in class. and they always wanted to talk about it. I tried to avoid it. We were told by our cadre not to talk about it. It didn't matter. The students wanted and it got them speaking English. So I'm kind of one of those going, looking around kind of like, okay, now here's the thing. Here's the topic for today, you know, and I would do it just because I knew it would get them ignited. And I, I'm, I can't believe I wasn't fired for it, <laughs> you know, or worse. Um, but the students, yeah, the first time I talked about the Korean war, I realized, yeah, they don't see it the same way we do. No. And it's, do you feel like your understanding of the Korean war changed because of what the students in China were telling you? Yes. How did it change? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Yalu river, the whole thing around the Yalu river. Now the Yalu river is what separates uh, Heilongjiang province in China from North Korea. Yeah. So that's the river that North Koreans will typically try to cross. That's the river where the Chinese came across in order to help the North Koreans push the South Koreans and the American forces back. Once MacArthur had gotten to that point, of course, that's where it was sort of like, hey, we can't go any further and we're in dangerous territory already because now the Chinese are going to be triggered and they're going to start thinking that we're here to invade or take over. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. Because it would sort of be a backdoor way into China. And of course, as far as if you don't know anything about strategy in China, that northeastern part is a big manufacturing, uh, coal mining area of China. It's 
it's a very important strategic part of China. So the fact that you've got American, Canadian, Australian, British forces all sort of trekking their way through that their backyard, if you will, where they're over there mining and, and making things, it that's a you could see where people might be a little bit like, hold on now. Um, what's the next step? You know, first you invade, you know, this area, then you invade this area. What's next? Are we the next one on the deal? So you can kind of see it from their perspective. They saw it as a defense measure of their friend, but also of their own homeland. And you don't realize that when we think of the Korean War, we just think, oh, we were there to help our buddies. It was South Korea. We were pushing North Koreans out. They invaded South Korea. Mm-hmm. Simple story, right? But mm-hmm. let's look back on Cuba. Let's talk about Cuba and Russia. You know, let's talk yeah. about, um, you know, areas of influence in the Western Hemisphere where we got nervous. People were in our backyard. Um, and we could, it just makes you then reflect on the wars differently. And you, you see it from a perspective that you never thought. And that's the lesson itself, not the actual lesson of the Korean War, but the lesson of I'm not opening my mind to the possibilities that I may be wrong. You mm. know, mm. so. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that this book, Rivertown, really opened my eyes to, which I knew this already, but it's like when you read a book like this, you just realize how uneducated and ignorant we are about histories outside of the United States. I would say most Americans are also ignorant of their own history, but um, there's just so much in this book that I was like, you know, I'm Googling things, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know about the May 4th movement of 1919. I don't know anything about uh, you know, like I know their names, right? Like I know Mao Zedong, you know, like I know about the cultural revolution. I know about the idea of like, you know, opening China up to out, you know, to trying to like do cultural exchange and stuff. But I am just suddenly aware of my own ignorance around so much stuff in Chinese history that has really happened just in the last, in, you know, 50 to 60 years is what Hessler does a really good job of helping you to realize that like China has been through huge dramatic shifts in a very short period of time. And we, we don't know anything about it in the United States. Nothing. Great point. Great point. And from really, it's almost like having a, a super dwarf, you know, right next to us and the gravitational pull is immense, but we don't realize that it's even, that it's even pulling. You know, I mean, it's a superstar um, country over there, huge, 1.5 billion people. Its landmass is as big as ours. It's, you know, which makes it roughly the third, either depending on who you're talking to, either the third or the fourth um, largest country uh, landmass in the world. I mean, and yet we know very little about that it, in our lifetime. Pete, I don't know how old you are, Pete, but I, I, I'm 41. You're 41. Okay. I was born in 76. Okay. The, the, the very year that Mal died. So the yeah. cultural revolution ended the year that I died. Mm-hmm. And that revolution um, was immensely important to their people and how it affected them and how the Chinese are today. So a lot of the things in the book um, are still very much in the Confucian mind. And he talks about it a little bit, but also very much affected by Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping. And the leaders of the modern day China, and I consider it modern day, anything after World War II, I suppose I'd consider modern day. But um, yeah, um, 
you know, even even the part on um, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you check this out because I marked it and I wanted to bring it up because it seems like a good point to break up right on page 70. Yeah, um, seems like a good time to bring this up. And it's the sure. second paragraph. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about the Confucian sort of an old way. And this is kind of the thing it says. Uh, he says it was the Chinese way. Success was expected and failure criticized and promptly corrected. You were right or you were butoy. There was no middle ground. As I became bolder with the language, I started experimenting with new words and new structures. And this was good, but it was also a risk. I would finish a series of sentences using vocabulary that I knew teacher Liao didn't expect me to know. And I would swear that I could see her flinch with unwilling admiration. And yet she would say, Boudoui, and correct the part that had been wrong. Mm -hmm. I grew to hate Boudoui. It sound mocked me. And that to me was just a big part that's that Confucian sort of, they used to have to take that civil service exam and you either made it or you didn't either your family was honored or it was shamed. It was such an important part of the Chinese psyche is this idea of you have to be perfect. You have to nail everything they expect you to do. I mean, I, I wince at the idea that a Chinese Olympian, if they just had a failing moment that absolutely just flopped, I, I, I fear for what happens to them in the backdrop mm -hmm. amongst their family, their friends and whoever their, their coaches, teachers, whoever else was there, because this is the thing. And this is the Confucian part. that still lasts is they're expecting this, this perfectionism. Well, so, you know, I had a question about that. And again, it just speaks to my own ignorance and I'm perfectly, you know, happy to state that I'm ignorant about all of this. Um, you know, one of the tensions in the book for me is this idea between the ways that uh, in China they've destroyed so much of their traditional culture. You know, yeah. Esler is talking about the destruction of Buddhism and Confucianism and the temples and, you know, all of this. There's like a religious undertone to a lot of this, too. Right. There seems to be a severe distrust of religion of any sort in China. Um and yet you're saying that this kind of perfectionism and this need to be correct and perfect at all times is rooted in Confucian tradition. So can you, from your own knowledge of this, tell me about that? Like, how, how is that possible? And I'll, what I'll do is I'll probably just try to have you imagine for a second the idea of Confucianism with its people would study for a decade for these civil service exams. Again, you have to score nearly perfect because everybody wanted to make it in life from the farm, from their agrarian lifestyles to be in a civil right. servant. Right. Um, so they studied and put everything on this. So you've got this idea of perfectionism, which is ingrained in them. And then let's mix that later, years later, generations later with a, with an extreme nationalism mm -hmm. that comes in, in, in 1949. Um, mm -hmm. and you combine this perfectionism with nationalism and you get a very dangerous thing for young minds, which is I have to be the best for my China or yeah. I am, what am I, what do I do? And so it's funny because when you're there, it's not funny, but it's, it's educational because when you're there, you see those that, that did not live up to that nationalistic expectation, the perfectionism the honoring of the family um, to serve the government who is, is China. And, and, yeah. and um, it's my being, it's my everything. I wear my red scarf around school because I was one of the, you know, one of the 
the little little mal guards purse people um and those who didn't make it it's almost like they go well i guess i'll just fall on entrepreneurship <laughs> you know it's almost like so they they go then for a a more selfish and self-serving wealthy type of uh, a path and it's funny because that is the drive that's the very drive of modern day china is their success in business is almost accidental it's almost like the those who couldn't hack went into business and became uber rich but those that could went into government and became civil servants and they got that good government job and they were the good subjects but they're not making the money that the other guys are making so which one becomes success and there's this irony throughout modern day china that mixes in that as you said just the destruction of the old and i don't know if he mentioned it in the book but they're they're used to i think he did matter of fact i think he did i, I remember reading it um the what was it the three olds i think it was what they called destruction of the old culture the old language or, or or something along those lines and i'll have to i'd have to flip through and see if i can find no, my that doesn't here. that doesn't seem familiar with to me but it's, but okay um, he, he was, does at one point talk about like the um something about the nine um the nine things that were really bad for you to be and it, I, I, I yeah, have it written down someplace. Um, Let's see. And that actually came through in, I want to say, wasn't it, was it Storm? I wish I could find that. There's no way I'll find it in this book right now, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. And there, and that was, that was, a, that was the point was like you said, the, the destruction of this old culture, the destruction of these relics, the destruction of religion, the destruction of old culture. Um, you know, Confucianism is being held alive by the generations of the past. The new generation hardly knows about it um, because uh, capitalism is the new religion. Um, but then, then again, you've got those other ironies. So instead of Confucianism mixed with nationalism, now you've got capitalism mixed with communism. And so it's constant. There's a constant struggle in this society and people don't realize the epic battles going on uh, theoretically within those borders and how important it is because their success may or may not lead to our success or failure, depending on how, what side it comes out to. I mean, we're going to be affected again. That's like a, you know, that, that superstar, that, that, what is it? A white dwarf sitting there and it's pulling the gravitational pull is absolutely yanking on us. And we just don't even realize it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it made me think about one of the sections I put on the notes was this idea about a changing China or like the contradictions that were arising in the society. And um, you know, on page 39, he was talking about, you know, talking to his students to try to get them to explain some of these contradictions, you know, and he says, I asked the students to explain what these phrases meant, historical materialism, the people's democratic dictatorship, socialism with Chinese characteristics, but they were never able to answer in clear and simple language. It was, as Orwell would say, a case in which words and meaning had completely parted company or whatever the case mm. is. And, um, you know, I think in the U.S., 
the, the vision that we have of China is that, you know, first of all, people will hear China and they'll hear Communist Party, they'll hear socialism, they have this very, you know, narrow minded view of what that means. They think that everybody's living in poverty. Uh, and, you know, because that's the way that we envision communism and socialism. And yet, to your point, it seems like from Hessler's description of China that it's very entrepreneurial. It's people are making money. They are serving their communities in particular types of ways, at least economically. Um, and I'm not saying it doesn't sound bad. I know that there's a lot of poverty, but I guess it makes you think about the fact that like that's true in the United States as well. <laughs> like you can go to parts of the United States and people who didn't make it, quote unquote, into the universities, into the colleges, into the civil servant positions, into the government roles are the people who end up having to do this type of entrepreneurial work that is, in fact, in many cases, going to either leave them in poverty or is going to catapult them into richness. This is, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg story, right? Like, or the Elon Musk or whatever. You don't need college. You can make all this money doing this type of stuff, you know, all that kind of stuff, all that kind of garbage that's going on. So I don't know. I'm just thinking about like all of our societies and our ways of understanding each other are just riddled with misinformation, contradictions, and we don't know how to deal with those types of things as nation states, I don't think. Because in the US, we have a particular story we want to tell about China. I think that's absolutely a brilliant observation. I think it's spot on. And I think that it's one of, um, it's just like we do with people. It's just like we judge people based on their clothing, their cars or whatever it may be. It's, yeah. it's the same thing. We do it from the personal level all the way up to the national level. And so us, the way that we um, sort of pigeonhole China is that way. But on page nine, he actually says it best when he says in paragraph two, he says, nothing was quite what it seemed. And that's what, and that was how life went in those early days, everything uncertain and half a step off. And that was because of this change that they were going through. I think, especially between the times of Deng Xiaoping um, taking over uh, after, after, uh, 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 after the 89 Tiananmen Square uh, thing. I think Deng Xiaoping basically just said, look, the reform and opening is happening. At the same time, you've got an old guard who still believe in the, 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 the iron rice bowl, the pension system, Mao Zedong, the, 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 the revolution, permanent revolution. We've, we're, we're constantly striving to, to do away with feudalism, even though feudalism had been dealt away with 70 years before by that time. And mm -hmm. it's like people still, it's a half step. I mean, the irony is we see this brilliant, um, parading going on between the, in the Chinese military with their goose step. And they're so perfect and everybody's the same height. And we see it in the Olympics, with the drummers and everything. And yet the fact is that society is a half step off because you've got these pensioners with this idea, the promise of a lifelong state sponsored employment and taking care of, you've got entrepreneurs with the capitalistic mind, you've got you know, people challenging both systems on both sides. And it's no different. We were, we're so used to here in America being stable in one thought, which is liberty, pursuit of happiness, yada, 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 you know, all that stuff. But China wasn't 
That's not the tradition of China. They changed. They flip-flopped twice within the same century. Twice, from feudalism to communism, from or socialism and socialism to sort of a socialism with or, or capitalism with, with Chinese characteristics, as he said. Yeah. And these are major shifts in society. And how do people who are alive within that same century, how do they adjust to these differences? Um, and, I, and that's why it seems a half step off. And he's absolutely correct is nothing was certain. Nothing. And, and we didn't know how to handle it. And I think that, you know, I mean, we, we, I'm not going to go into modern politics, but I think it's changing yet again. So. Yeah, um, I think so. And I think, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I was fascinated with the sections of the book where he was talking to particularly people that I would paint as like the older generation, people who had gone through these traumatic experiences, particularly with the Cultural Revolution, where clearly they were sent away to, they were persecuted, right, by the government. They were sent away because they were intellectuals or because they spoke out against the government or whatever the case is. And they somehow psychologically were able to reconcile that. You know, you were speaking about nationalism, this this idea that I think a lot of the older generation had, at least as Hessler portrays them, is that things aren't necessarily great, but they could be so much worse. Right. (laughs) I think that for most of them, especially those living in the countryside, and this is where we really have to sort of be clear about who we're talking about. Are we talking about the urban people with their hookah? Now he mentioned the hukou card. The hukou is mm-hmm. a, essentially a a passport to live in a certain area. Mm. If you're born in Beijing, you the countryside outside of Beijing, you can only work in if invited by your cadre. Your as long as you have employment. Once you lose employment, you can't find housing in Beijing anymore. You've got to leave. Um, and so it, it's important we talk about who it is that we're discussing. So, yeah, it's, there's, there's just a lot going on right now that I think everybody knows it. Everybody, and uh, I, I, it's hard for me to explain it because it was easy. That was one of those foreign um, – uh, uh, privileges that I have, I could just leave when I wanted to, if it got a little too hairy for me, or if it got a little too difficult, I could leave. And so I guess it's, um, it's more evident in that experience he had with the shoe shop place where he was nearly attacked. I've got the, uh, I've got that marked as a matter of fact, I think the attack. Yeah. The argument as I called it starting on three seventeen. um, and he talks about the guy that he was having a conversation with um, the guy selling the kebabs. Um, and this is pretty typical. Uh, and I'll just kind of set it up. It says, one night near the end of the holiday, I ordered five kebabs from Mr. Zhang, who invited me to sit on his stool, as he always did. A few of the other vendors came over to chat, as well as a number of passerbys who stopped to stare at the Waiguaran. So... Um, that's pretty typical. Wherever the white or the foreigner goes, uh, there's a crowd that would develop. And 
different different things can come from that. And then you see a lot of times you actually see the anger, resentment, nervousness, uh, friendship, love, curiosity, all of these different things all mixed into one situation. You're just trying to eat a meal uh, with a, maybe a local guy that you, you go and visit often, as I did. I mean, we, we would eat kebabs. We would eat um, at these different vendors' places. We like their food. They make it on the side of the street there. You have a seat on a stool. Mm-hmm. You have a bite to eat. People come by. Usually there's 10, 12 people just staring at you, just stopping as if frozen in time, staring at you as though an alien just dropped right in front of them. And you're just eating a meal. Sometimes it's friendly. You strike up a thing. Well, in this case with Peter, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't turn out to be so good because it ended up being an almost a physical fight. And I think that that's where the guy that engaged with him on that negative perspective probably was nervous, unsure. Are you, again, are you an invader? Are you an attacker? We don't know who you are or what you're doing. And that lends to that's sort of like, that's modern China as well is just, um, yeah, this uncertainty. And now there's a foreigner here and I don't even know what I'm going to do tomorrow to put food on the table. And who's this guy who's invaded my country? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I thought was, was also like a fascinating kind of like subplot of the book, not a plot really, but like a a sub theme of the book was this, this way that Peter started to see himself as like this split personality, right? He, he goes into this discussion about, you know, there's my American self and there's my Chinese self. And away, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, away. You know, and, you know, he, th- these two incidents towards the end of the book, the one that you just talked about, and also the one right at the end of the book with the video recording and the crowd and the mob oh, and, yeah. and this kind of idea that like they, they had gone into this part of town where they had not been before and the people felt threatened, right? Like you can, you can feel that, but on page 321, you know, what I really appreciate about Hessler and about this book is the humility with which he's talking about and reflecting on his reactions to these types of situations that happen. You know, he says on page 321 about this kebab incident with the shoeshine person, The incident left me embarrassed. I had been educated at Princeton and Oxford, and yet for some reason I felt the need to face off with a Sichuanese shoeshine man until the locals said he had no culture. I knew that his harassment had nothing to do with me personally, and I knew that I should have sympathy for him because his bitterness was the result of other pressures." You know, it's, it is so important that when you are reading a book about another country that you try to put yourself into the position of humbling yourself and saying, in this situation, I acted like, for lack of a better word, an a-hole. You know, I, I wanted him to feel shame about his position in the society. I somehow felt higher than him, better than him, even in talking about this idea that I'm, I'm educated at Princeton and Oxford. Just because you're educated at Princeton and Oxford doesn't mean that you can't become an a-hole, you know, or like <laughs> people like, 
So I just appreciated that about that particular incident in the book and also the one at the end where he's talking about, you know, him and his Peace Corps colleague and the ways that they should have known better than to do the things that they were doing. And yet they still did them. Did you, did you catch the, and I'm sure you did, did you catch the, um, the change in Peter in whole way from the beginning to the end? Um, well, <laughs> I came to fooling on the slow boat downstream from Chongqing. You know, it's almost like I just wandered my way down into this area. Mm -hmm. everything happens and at the very end it's almost like there is a resentment of china itself in many ways what did you think about and i just loaded the question and i shouldn't have but what did you think about his voice his change though from the beginning to the end from the curiosity or tell me the two characteristics that you would say to describe the first peter hessler and the end ho way that's a good question um I mean, I would say that like at the beginning of the book, he presents himself much more as uh, somebody who's, who's quite curious. He wants to learn the language. He's, uh, you know, he wants to go out and, and kind of talk to people. By the end of the book, he he comes across much more to me as somebody who has grown tired of and is kind of irritated by some of the ways that China operates. I mean, in fact, I think I pulled a quote about this um, where he's talking about teaching Let me find the quote because, um, yeah. yeah, here it is. It's on page 376. So this is literally like 20 pages from the end of the book. And he's talking about this, this incident with the Don Quixote play and the students, right? And like right. the fact that, you know, which is, I mean, these stories are, are really fascinating. But he says on page 376, he says, if you try to politicize everything, turning every piece of literature and every scrap of history to your purposes, then at a certain point, it was bound to blow up in your face. And, and here's the part where I say he becomes less, less forgiving is the word that I would use. After two years, I was sick of the countless anniversaries and commemorations. I was tired of the twisted history and I had had enough of our propaganda laced textbooks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He becomes much less tolerant. Yeah. When I had to go back and read this, obviously the last time I read it was, well, I read it twice. I read it 17 years ago, 18 years ago. I read it once in between when I was in China and I read it again here this time. And I, but I was reading it thinking about what you were thinking about. Actually, I was trying to see it from a new perspective because I had known that this book almost became biblical in a way for my experience 
in China, everything from the Baijiu parties, the commemorations and, and, and anniversaries he talked about with the little, no, 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 you must drink, Miss, Miss, Miss Sai, you must drink. You know, I mean, those happen. The, 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 the public um, friendliness, but also the contradiction with that, again, the, the, the anger and resentment, the, the way that the students can be, whether they can be a joy to teach, but also it can be just immensely frustrating. Just all of these things became absolutely true but I've tried to think about it from an open mind and, and, and imagine that I hadn't experienced all that myself and seen it and been like, yeah, Peter's right. It's almost like I'm just nodding the whole time that I'm in China. Well, Peter was right. Peter was right. He told me, he warned me that this was going to happen. Um, and I tried to see if you saw that, that, that same thing, just that, um, again, just the, the irony of the thing, which is you go to a country, you're super curious, you're interested, you fall in love. And then it just, it just completely turned sour on you. And did you, you know, for me, the question was, did he see how we're supposed to, by being introduced and by experiencing something, we're supposed to appreciate it more? I mean, if you're going to hate something, it's a human emotion. It's a strong emotion. It's a negative emotion. But if you're going to hate something, you're going to hate something. And you're going to hate it right away most of the time. It's a little more complicated when you love something and then after spending more time with it, you just learn to hate it. Not maybe hate's the strong word, like you said, irritated by it, frustrated with it, tired of it, sick of it, as he said. You know, and that to me almost it just almost breaks you down because you want to believe that if I can introduce my students, if I can introduce my kids, if I can introduce my spouse, if I can introduce these people to certain things that that I'm passionate about. I hope that they they fall in love with it and that they can carry that torch. But um, if it turns to something more irritating, that's it, it's unfortunate. What do you do? Where's where's the hope for us all coming together? You know, in the world, if eventually we're all just like, you know what? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of your habits. I'm tired of your way you do things and all your 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 com commemorations and anniversaries and who cares anymore? And then we just go our separate way again. And in a way, it's just frustrating. And that was the frustrating thing that I took from it this time around. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is I read the postscript and like the, the, the thing, I don't, I think we have the same version and he has this kind of like uh, section in the PS about uh, returning to, to the city, going back to China. And um He seems, he seems to decide that he's going to stay in the city and that he, he's going to leave behind the, he's going to stay on the East Coast now. I think that he ends up in Shanghai or, or someplace like that. And, um, and he's not going to go back to, to fueling. And, you know, he says, someday I might go back, but I, I don't think now, that leads me to a, a kind of different conclusion, but it, it's another part of the book. And we've been talking about this kind of, you know, change that's going on. And in particular, in this book, he's talking about the change that's going to happen with the Three Gorges Dam and like all of this kind of stuff. So the other way I would answer the question you asked me a few minutes ago is that I would say, I also read Peter as having a deep mourning for 
the losses that were going to come in that part of China mm-hmm. that almost to a, to a certain degree, he doesn't want to go back and face seeing how that part of China has changed because of the dam and the other things that are going on. So, so I can read it both ways, right? Like he does become irritated, but I think he also becomes very sad at the end of the book about the fact that there is going to be like all these towns are going to get flooded because of the dam. They're going to go underwater. These people's even like his discussions about building the immigrant city where he's like, what is this city that they're building? And like, you know, um, so he's sad about the loss of provincialism and the loss of culture and other things that are going to happen in that part of the world, almost to a point that he can't deal with it. I think that a shared experience, if you go over there, we, one word, let me ask you this. And here's what I was trying to, if, if I say the word China, before you read this book, if I said China, what's the, what, what would be one word that you would come up with probably first thing off your mind? Socialist. Okay. So you think of it in terms of its sort of government, collective government sort of organization. Um, for yeah. me, it goes back to, do you remember the movie um, Big Trouble in Little China? No, I've never seen it. I'm going to have to watch you never it. See, it, no. it had, um, who was the guy that was in Tango and Cash with Sylvester Stallone? That was, um, I can't think, forget, the, I, I forget the actor's name. He was really popular back at that time. Um, I, I, I can even think of who his wife is. I cannot remember his name for the life of me. I'll, I'll try to find it, but um if my internet wasn't down right here, I'd be Googling it right now. As we no, talk I'm, I'm looking it. it up. So who are you trying to, who are you? I'm looking it up right now. Who are you trying to think about? So he's the main male actor in Big Trouble in Little China. Kurt Russell? Kurt Russell. There you go. Thank you. Okay. So Kurt Russell in that movie, I, I think about, I always think about Kurt Russell and I always think about this. There was this older Chinese man. Uh, and so when I was younger, I saw that movie and there was an older Chinese man that was more of that Confucius type um, you know, you t- were talking about the feudal China time with the robes and the long pinky fingernail and uh, mm-hmm. the jewelry. Also, he's in there and he's very mystical, magical guy. When I think of China, that's what I think of mystical. Mm-hmm. To me, the word is always mystical, magical, um, mysterious. To me, that's China and how has always been China. And so it's different when the, when the reveal happens and the curtain is pulled aside and you realize that China is like any other country. The people are like any others. And I think that, um, you know, Peter kind of was the same way. There was a fascination with old China. Most of us expats living over there, as a matter of fact, um, I I feel like um, we all wanted to be alone. And he, Peter talks about this in his book a lot. We all wanted to be alone. He didn't want to be with Adam. He wanted to be Peter in China. Yeah. You know, and experience it on his own with his own mind, his own experience, nobody talking his ear, nobody telling him, Hey, did you see that? Hey, what do you think? Hey, I hate that. Hey, whatever. Just let him form his own. And I, everybody that I knew over there was the same way. They went over there all saying, Shh, don't load me with your thoughts, your opinions, your biases. Let me make up my own mind about what I experience in this country. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that Peter went through that and he walked through it on his own and he came out the, the other end with the thoughts he had. And that's fair enough. At least he did it. I feel like, you know, he came up with it on his own. He gave it an honest try to just walk his own walk through the country, you know? Yeah. I mean, I thought one of the other things that was fascinating to me was that in fact, he does not spend time in the Eastern part of China. He seemed very intentional about deciding because he was sent to fueling and, you know, even when he goes on his summer vacation, he's, you know, he says, I'm not going to go to Beijing. I'm not going to go to Shanghai. (laughs) Um, I'm, you know, he goes to this, you know, little town in the North near the uh, Kazakh border. He travels to the uh, Uyghur independent district in the, in the Western part of China. Um, because he, he wants to stay in, the, in these kind of like regional, provincial, non-developed, uh, well, I mean, they're, they're developed to a certain degree, but he, he seems to want to stay in, in the rural part of China. Um, so I, I, I did appreciate that because the book felt to me like you were getting much more of an authentic experience of what life is like for most people in China as opposed to what life is like in these big urban centers, because urbanity in itself is not really the way that most people in the world live. Right. That's right. Especially when you're talking about China, where we, we take it for granted. But when I was there, they said there were still um, the percentage of people living in the country was somewhere along the lines of 800 million people. And and I mean, wow. we're talking rural China. You go, hey, that's almost three times the size of the U.S. population mm-hmm. living an agrarian, rural lifestyle, mm-hmm. lack of education, lack of facilities, lack of opportunity. Uh, and yet what's funny, again, because I just think that the book and China itself is so full of ironies. Um, mm-hmm. The country folk that I taught at universities and many of the ones even at middle school, because um, I taught at private and public schools in China, they were some of the most focused yes. and some of the best students. And they fought their way out of their situation in a way that said, hey, it's funny. We talk about socialists. We talk about China. We talk about capitalism with, with Chinese characteristics. But it was almost like, this is the story of success. This is the story of, you know, every successful entrepreneur who took their steps in their pants with their own shoes and walked. And there's a great, in fact, it's, it's one of your quotes. It. It's, it's on yes. page 25. I mean, yeah, we've got to talk about this stuff as two educators, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny because on the one hand, he talks about the guy, the old hundred names, It was the fisherman who he said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing that I don't need an education. This is my education and I'm free to think freely because I'm not educated. Kind of a kind of a Roger Waters moment, if you will. You know, we don't need no education. You know, I I just whatever. And then on the other hand, there are these who want to succeed and what they see is an ever more increasing capitalistic country with competition. and, the, and, and amongst people who, who, who just want to get out. And I loved this because they even said on page 24, going to page 25, education was a game and students played it. But in Fuling, 
They hadn't yet reached that point. Their intelligence was still raw. It smelled of the countryside, of sweat and muck, of night soil and ripening rapeseed and everything else that composed the Sichuanese farmland. And in their thoughts were flashes of the land, glimpses of the same sort of hard beauty that had surrounded the teacher's college, where the campus ended in terraced fields that ran steep up the side of Raise the Flag Mountain, which, of course, raised the flag being a reference to communism, okay. socialism, the revolution. And all of this is happening underneath Raise the Flag Mountain. I mean, I think Hessler's brilliant in how he will place a lot of these monuments that we talk about, whether it's the riverbank, the river itself, raise the flag mountain, teacher's college. And all of these are the characters in the book that we don't recognize as characters, they're places or they're monuments, but no, they are characters. In fact, representing certain philosophical thoughts, certain historical moments, certain important facts, which prove his point as he tries to do. Yeah, well, even the way he talks about the rivers, we have a lot to talk about right here. Um, <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I loved the way that he talked about his students and the relationships that he built with his students and the way that he did it describe that these students were hungry for learning. They were hungry for doing things that in the American educational context, we would never think about that, you know, coupling your quote from page 25 is the quote that I pulled out from page 42, where he's talking about the ways that reflecting on American students, he would get depressed when he compares those students to Chinese students. And he says, you know, at times it depressed me. The Chinese had spent years deliberately and diligently destroying every valuable aspect of their traditional culture. And yet with regard to enjoying poetry, Americans had arguably done a much better job of finishing ours off. How many Americans could recite a poem or identify its rhythms? Every one of my fueling students could recite at least a dozen Chinese classics by heart. They still read books and they still read poetry. That was the difference. You know, he, he is enamored by his students and his students are so... I loved all the stories, Mike, about how they rewrote Hamlet, how they would <laughs> interpret the Rip Van Winkle story from uh, you know, Washington Irving to their own environment, the Don Quixote story at the end. I mean, they just, the, the students there loved literature. They loved learning about this stuff. God, could we get students like that? I don't know if these <laughs> students are like that, but you know, it's like, yeah, because they get there. Now, to your other point about the man, you, you, you know, you were, you were talking about this man who was much more open to speaking his mind because he was not educated. That's on pages 172 and 173. All right. The quote I pulled from this yeah. is is on page 173 where you know he tells the story about this man basically telling him everything his own opinions and he says what you said you know i can say all this because i'm not educated that the education system as propaganda is what peter is reflecting on here and he's saying the more i thought about this the more pessimistic i was 
about the education that my students were receiving. And I began to feel increasingly ambivalent about teaching in a place like that. So again, you know, it ties into this theme that we're talking about uh, uh, regarding how Peter shifts over the course of the book. At the beginning of the book, he's super excited about the way that his students are really into the education and everything. By the end of the book, he's super pessimistic about the educational system as a propaganda machine, as a form of censorship, as a way that his students are not actually getting an education or they're getting a certain type of education that fuels nationalistic endeavors or hides opportunities and thoughts. Yeah. Is another way to, I mean, I think about what you said and the part you read about how at least they still read books, they read poetry, they understood it. But I think that going back to, I, I don't know if I, th- I don't know if this is the one that you mentioned before, but it, mm-hmm. he even wrote on page 45, none of it could be explained. Well, he said, and I could make very little sense of most criticism, which seemed a hopeless mess of awkward words, deconstructionism, postmodernism, new historicalism. Mm-hmm. None of it could be explained simply and clearly, just as my feeling students stumbled when asked to find historical materialism or socialism with Chinese characteristics. You said it. I think that sometimes the meaning the importance of things can be hidden in our own culture as a way to control because not allowing the depth of thought about the things that are going on around us. How many of us have reflected on 9-11, truly, truly, truly reflected on 9-11 and said there and going, you know, this could be, and I've got a book right behind me called Blowback. This could simply be blowback. This is, this is American foreign policy coming to a head And we're looking outwards and going, you stinking terrorists, not saying, well, you know, Team America World Police was out there doing its thing all these years. And so I think the same thing can be said about the Chinese and what you mentioned here, as I wonder how much of it for them, it's like they have, they are um, underestimated by their cadre for their thinking abilities. They are able to read Shakespeare and see the meaning and find and derive the, the purpose of, of Shakespeare's writings. In a lot of these cases, whether it's Hamlet um, or whether it was what was a, the Don Quixote, as you mentioned, and the meaning behind all that, because it's foreign and they don't expect that the students will make a connection. Oh, they're probably just struggling with the language as it is. How can they possibly understand the meaning? We don't have to worry about this being a message of liberty, personal freedom, um, imagination, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. we're not going to educate you in your language about these things though, because if we put those ideas out there, they could be dangerous. And I'm not saying they don't, I'm saying I doubt that they do. And we have this um, privilege of being able to learn all these things in here and tear them apart and take a poem and, 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 and end up with essentially the core of its meaning where it comes down to a value or a personal asset or whatever it may be. But we take that for granted, you know? And I mean, I'll admit to being enthralled with the poems of Dufu, but not understanding anything about what Dufu was writing about really, other than the beauty of the writing itself, his reflections, um, because it was a time that I just, it's hard for me to understand that period of time. Um, But I don't struggle to, to, uh, to uh, uh, 
derive meaning from Baudelaire when I read his um, haunting words, mm-hmm. you know, because it's my own culture and we've been allowed to do it. I think that the students there are allowed to look at Baudelaire and be like, wow, the passion, the darkness, the spirit, and the, the depravity, you know, the evil that exists under this man's words, you know, they're allowed to see that, but let's not see the evil or, or, um, or let's not see the light behind the words of Thomas Jefferson, or let's not see the light behind um, the words of Thomas Paine, because that would be more dangerous politically. And that's just an, an, an idea that I've, you know, sort of looked at, not certain if, if I'm right or wrong, there doesn't matter. It's just sort of what I see is maybe a purpose of why they allow certain things in English to be done. And it's things have changed. Things have changed a lot since um, 2004 when I was first there and 96 when River, when uh, Peter Hessler was first there, things have changed a lot in terms of the teachers and what we're allowed to teach now. So it's quite possible that it did touch nerves. So, um, but there's new Chinese leadership as well. So that has something to do with it. I'm certain. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when you asked what is a word that people would think about when, when, if you were to say China, what's the word, you know, and I said socialism, but like sure. another word that I would have said is, you know, propaganda or, you know, all these other types of things. Like we think that we're trained in our country to think of communist countries uh, as propaganda machines. And certainly Hessler talks about this in the book. But, you know, to his frustration at the end of the book with, you know, his kind of pessimism about the educational system in China and the way that they will allow you to do some things and not allow you to do other things. What I thought was genius about the book was that in education, in politics, in democracy, socialism, in individualism versus communitarianism, what Hessler did quite masterfully for me was he was trying to make an American reader say, are we really any different in the United States, right? Like if, you, if you're an educator right now, you cannot help but think that our government is trying to censor certain things from students' curriculum. We are literally living in a time where our government's are passing bills outlawing the teaching of race, saying that you can't discuss this thing or that thing. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me that people in this country would probably say that the government controls too much in China when in fact our own government is doing so much to control what it is that we are and are not allowed to teach in our own schools, our, our own colleges and universities. Going back to an earlier uh, topic, as you you had mentioned, um, uh, I think early on in the in the conversation we talked um, about, uh, and I just I'm sorry, I was thinking about the book, and then I lost my train of thought there for a second. It's okay. Um, as far as uh, uh, what we're allowed or not not allowed to. Uh, <laughs> Oh, and it was so good. It was right there because it it's going to come back. Up, it's going to come you back. You brought up a, <laughs> you brought up such a great point. So you were you were saying that about our about what we're allowed and not allowed. Oh, about the country. So we were talking about how I had said how China, the English language. Why is everyone else learning English and we are not learning their language? And I said, well, 
to me, the insight was they wanted to be us. They wanted to come to our field and they wanted to beat us on our field and they wanted to be able to play in, with the big boys, the Brits and the, and the Americans. And, and I think that um, as we feel like China's trying to be more like America, how much is it that America's becoming more like China? You know, oh, at the same that time. is a brilliant point. You know, are we, are they pulling us in whether we're pulling instead of us pulling them in? I just, the, the book, you, you brought up the point about that, about and, and bringing in current events with what he was saying in the book and how he masterfully showed the idea that how different are we really? It says, well, yeah, now that you say it, we're not. We're really not. We're, in fact, becoming more like them in that way. And what's funny is as they have brought us onto the trail, I'm not saying this is deliberate, but as we have gotten on the same road as them, it's almost like they're walking back because, as I said, new leadership is taking them back into a way that's different from how Deng Xiaoping, uh, Hu Jintao, and the modern day leadership in China were kind of envisioned China. And those are the two guys that, you know, Peter Hessler would have benefited from a China that those two guys, you know, uh, well, maybe not Hu Jintao, but definitely Deng Xiaoping brought about. So I'm wondering, <laughs> I think you, I think you made a great point there. Well, and you know, he reiterated on page 192 also that, you know, another quote that uh, the book is just chock full of so much, but <laughs> he, you know, he says about this, this idea of like, is America like China is China like America on page 192. He says, I realized that these myths were a sort of link between America and China. Both countries were arrogant enough to twist some of their greatest failures into sources of pride. <sighs> you know, all of the, all of the stuff about, you know, that's the section of the book where he's talking about the Great Wall of China and how the Great Wall of China was this like failure in terms of, and you know, again, that's something that I just, I did not realize until I read Hessler's book. You know, we're taught the Great Wall of China was this wall that was built to keep out all of these people. He's in the Northern part of China walking on the Great Wall and he says, the wall is not great. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a three foot wall. You can literally step over the wall, right? Like I had no conception of this, Mike. I was like completely floored by this. And, but he's saying, you know, we've taken this thing, which is really a failure in our country. And we've turned it into this giant mythology that builds all this nationalistic rhetoric. And now the Great Wall of China is the Great Wall of China. And people think that's what you have to see when you go there. And it's not that great. We do that in America all the time. The Alamo. We think the Alamo is this like, you know, in Texas, we have this story about the Alamo as, you know, oh, they, they fought to save the Texas Republic and all this kind of stuff. And we're finally getting to a point where we can start having honest conversations about like, no, the Alamo was really not this like grandstanding type of a thing, but we've turned it into this in Texas, this Texas nationalistic thing. I don't know. I just, there's so many moments in the book where this comes up and Hessler does such a great job of, if you're a careful reader, he doesn't criticize America for it, but he makes you, if you're a careful reader, say, we are no different. We are the same. Absolutely. And I can think of the Trinity Project 
Um, mm. I think you're right. I think the, the subsequently what happened there after, you know, to, to end World War II, I mean, it was the essentially, I, this may be unpopular, but it was the murder of tens of thousands of, of innocent Japanese people. And for whatever the reason you say it is, I just don't see a reason to ever murder and see this murder as being a valid ex- reason or answer to anything ever. It's the absence of liberty. You taking away someone else's liberty is not protecting liberty. It, that contradiction cannot and never will be true. And I think, you know, I'll mention a name. You mentioned the Alamo. I'll mention another one. How about San Sabah? How many people know San Sabah? How many people know that San Sabah was actually the Spanish's attempt to reach out toward uh, to the Grains Plains Indians to bring them in to try to say, hey, let's work together towards something when it was violently attacked by the Comanches, burned to the ground. I don't know how many people were killed. I, su- I suspect nobody really knows the answer. And some may look back and go, well, they were just trying to extend a friendly hand. But colonialism is colonialism, mm. you know, to invade, to to take from someone else their life, their land uh, or their resources. It's 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 never good. And I think that, you know. How much of us are looking at. Education to take it to a different playing field, but along the same thought lines. How many of us are looking at education saying, this is where I have my, my land of liberty, which is my mind, and how and destroy it, change it, lead me awry, whatever it may be. And colonialism is never the right way to go. We have to allow for that freedom of thought, that freedom of mind, that freedom of learning. And, and there is a, there's a purity in that experience that he had in Rivertown of being able to having the freedom to go. But at the same time, all these things that are attacking him, controlling him, limiting him, whatever it may be. And how many walls do we have here or colonists do we have in our lives each day, whether you're in first grade, seventh grade or 17th grade, you know, there's colonists trying to take over. Like you said, how are we banning the conversation of race? How can we? Why would we? Um, that's the same colonialism as taking over uh, uh, a mission, a country, or, or someone's land. So, and, you know, he, he equally will critique China in certain ways. Like, th- there's these wonderful conversations in the book where he's talking about for example, the students saying, well, we don't have racism and prejudice in China, <laughs> right, right? right? Like, you know, his, <laughs> one of his students, Wendy says something like, you know, we have no racism or prejudice in China. And, and he's like, mm. or, the, or the part where he talks about going to Western China, the Uyghur independent district. And this is of course a huge problem right now. If you follow the news about what's going on in China, you know that the the Uyghurs are being persecuted and put into camps and and there are huge human rights violations and all this kind of stuff. And and so it, 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 you know, I think it's really good book to make you realize that like, we might criticize what the Chinese government is doing right now, for example, to the Uyghurs or even back then. That whole section of the book is, is quite well written. And yet in our own country, we're not allowed to criticize what we did to 
indigenous populations without certain people in the country saying, you know, well, why do you always criticize America? Why are you always critical of the country? Um, because we want honesty, um, because we want truth. Part of justice and equity and truth is that we deal with not just the good things that we did in our lives, but also with the really terrible atrocities that we were able to commit. I agree with you. Like, do we have an honest conversation about the morality around dropping an atomic bomb and killing hundreds of thousands of people in an instance? No, we just see the atomic bomb. We just see the invasion of Korea or the invasion of uh, Vietnam or whatever oh, the case mm-hmm. is as, um, as rightful, like we were, we have righteousness in, in these types of things. And, you know, books like this make you say, mm, not really. <laughs> it, it's, it's more, it's his perspective, his way of defining some of the people, some of the old hundred names is, um, thoughts and philosophies, I think is really good. Uh, it's not, it's not, he would have to write a whole other book in order to do it well and to do it better. I mean, obviously to dive right into how the common man there thinks and, and stuff. And I have a better perspective because my wife is Chinese. And so my father-in-law is Chinese. So, and he is a huge Mao Zedong supporter. I mean, he's a big fan of Mao and I understand now why I never did before. How can you idolize a man who was responsible for somewhere between 40 and 65 million deaths, you know, through starvation, through policies, which were absolute failure, Mm -hmm. but they don't see it that way. They see it as, but he rid China of feudalism, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the first thing he did, he can never be wrong because of that. Now he even mentions, Peter mentions in the book, he talks about Mao and how the students will say, what was it? And I don't know if you have it, Mark. Correct. Where was that? I don't, let me see if I can find that. Can you say it again? You cut out there for a second. So, um, Oh, he, he, he brings up a point um, where the students would mention that Mao Zedong was um, 66% correct or 75% correct. Oh, Do you yeah, remember yeah, that I particular remember part? Yeah, yeah. Let me see if I have it marked. I'm not really <laughs> sure. Um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm close to it, but um uh, oh here it is no no sorry that's the wrong thing i'm gonna find it this is where having a, a kindle version of the text would be um yes helpful yes <laughs> but I don't really care. We can take as long as we need. I I know that I wrote something in the corner, so I just got to find where it is.
I always try and remember, like sometimes when I read something, I'll remember where I was when I read it and that will help me to find. But in this case, I was actually on my tractor reading it. So it doesn't bring up, for some reason, all I see is pasture and sun setting and I was reading the book. <laughs> and I don't remember which point it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, this irritates me about myself too, because I'm like, oh, I know I read it. Um, Oh, there's your old stinking ninth reference right there, which of course refers to the educators, I believe is what they were. The educators were the old stinking ninth. Let's see. Hmm. well it may not be worth something getting caught up on it was um as you recall it was and we could paraphrase and say it was something along the lines of mal was yeah he was like 60 he was like uh, 60% correct or something like that. Right. Yeah. I remember reading it. Um, yeah, it was, let's, let's be fair. Yeah. 60. And of course, since it started with the blessed freed freeing of the people, uh, feudal, uh, uh, way of life, um, you know, then he was, he was correct as it was. So you have a, you have a thought about the people from there. And of course their insight, the, the folks and how they see things, um, Again, just a different, just a different way of viewing things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll ask you one one of the things I I I, I never really, I mean, I, I suppose we're talking. This is a this is more of the f- a feminist perspective here, but I I was trying to understand Miss Miss O. You know, who was the Xiaojie the. Um, Oh yeah. Way to put it. He spent a lot of time talking about her and I just think it was funny. He did mention that 66% of the, of Chinese rural people were female and it just putting some pieces together here. Did you catch anything about that and feel like at all that gender was at, at any point was really distinctly covered outside of talking about her as a Xiaojie, which basically just means she's a, um, She's a comforting person for men. Um, oh, gender is like a big part of the book. I had written down at some point that um, that he he really has some complicated relationships to the gendered aspects of the of the text. I mean, you know, the parts of the gendered. He spends a lot of time talking about women. I was much more fascinated by the conversations around masculinity and this, again, to compare China to America, this drinking culture among men at these <laughs> banquets. At, it felt like when he, when he was talking about that, it's towards the beginning of the book. 
it, it felt like this fraternity party to me. I was like, my yeah. God, these, these men are like, they're going and they're, they're taking shots. And when they're harassing that teacher, that other professor who doesn't have a high tolerance for alcohol and they're making drink all of this <laughs> alcohol, alcoholic shots. And if you don't do it, you're not seen as masculine enough. And I just thought, my God, this is, you know, what we're going to be dealing with on college campuses. Um, <laughs> and it's a particularly horrendous thing, Peyton, because Baijo has uh-huh. a smell, has a distinct smell like no other alcohol that you've ever, ever, ever known. And when it comes out after having been put in, it still smells the exact same. Um, and it tends to be, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's unique and it can be smelled throughout the hallways anywhere where it was. Yeah. Uh, he also, you know, where I wrote it down was I said, gender roles are very complicated in China is on page 283. Um, okay. 283. Uh, he's talking about the female students and I think he's talking about Anne and, and, you know, this kind of thing about like, it's not good to be different also in China and the way that, uh, you know, some of these women who were a little bit different were kind of ostracized by their peers. Again, that's no different than in the United States or whatever. Um, but, but in this last paragraph, he talks about uh, women, peasant women saw their husbands go off in search of work, gaining financial security, but leaving their spouses isolated. And sometimes this loneliness destroyed them. Women could earn money themselves. This was, was a way of becoming independent, but a career could also result in frustration of sexism and the criticism of people who felt that a woman shouldn't strive in this way. Um, what I wrote at the end of that paragraph was women's lives basically suck. Uh, they have no real options. If you're a woman in China, you have no real options to, you know, you've got to get married if your husband needs work and he leaves you, you can go lone. You, you become quite lonely and isolated if you're out in the country. Even the theme of like suicide, that women tend to commit suicide at higher rates uh, than men in China uh, comes up in the book. Um, so, yeah. Which I believe is the opposite in the Western hemisphere. I believe suicide amongst males is higher than females, if I believe. But what's interesting is there's not a moment in Chinese history where you can point to that says, hey, this is our women's liberation movement, or this is when, um, you know, women's suffrage or something finally occurred. There's no point in that. But what's interesting, and it's just a thought, I'm gonna put it out there, you tell me what you think. But Mm -hmm. I happen to, I happen to think because I guess because I saw it, and I witnessed it. I feel like this crawl towards capitalism helped bring women to a better place because capitalism entrepreneurship is an independent venture can be someone can decide to, you know, pull their, um, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, and whatnot. And I feel like women didn't have to wait for, you know, someone to accept them. in. for example, we talked about civil servants, and talk about government positions within the cadre, within the, the Chinese government or the party itself. Uh, typically, that's where things were controlled. It was male dominated. It was going to be very uh, um, 
you know, uh, ego driven and that sort of thing. Um, and, and just controlled overall, because if, if a certain type of person had control of the decision-making, they typically are going to choose someone that's more like them or whatnot, or to try to further their own type a little further. But I think that capitalism doesn't wait for that. Entrepreneurship doesn't wait for that. I mean, what it waits for is, did you, did you, did you meet need? Did you provide a need that customers are willing to pay for? Um, and that sort of in a way is, is an inspiring and uplifting exercise. And so how much of China, we can't point to a China's sub, women's suffrage movement. We could just point to the fact that as reform and opening happened through Deng Xiaoping, you saw uh, people providing opportunities for themselves. They didn't wait around. And that itself was a liberating movement for women. And mm-hmm. I saw that more because there are tons of women entrepreneurs in China that I knew that were successful, empowered, uh, bold, uh, brave, daring, successful, um, just as just as I saw as much of men who were beaten down, ignored, broken, uh, betrayed, or whatever. So, yeah, um, I did feel at certain points that he was. Hessler, that is, that Hessler mm-hmm. was a little bit sexist. Um, you know, he he also the the way that he would talk about his um, his female Chinese teacher, yeah, uh, Miss Liao, teacher Liao, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, on the one hand, he would talk about her in a way that he seemed to revere and respect her in saying like, you know, she was very traditionally Chinese woman in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, we had to meet in my office. We could never be seen together in a public place. All this kind of stuff, right? Like she's very much conservative and that seemed to like press him in a certain way that he didn't appreciate. And so, or even with that, um, you mentioned the woman who wrote him the note there's also the kind of um, the woman who comes to him at the, the like tea house on Sundays. And she's kind of like, I guess you would say like, you might say comfort worker or a prostitute or something like that. And she's trying to, so you, you do see in Hessler's accounting, a, a certain way of viewing, at least when I read it, he was kind of critical of, I don't know. It's complicated, right? Like when you talk about gender, I don't know. I'm not being clear in what I'm trying to say, but like on the one hand, I think that he was saying like, you know, oh, my teacher shouldn't be so conservative. She shouldn't be so traditionally gendered. Right. And then on the other hand, he's saying this woman who is a prostitute shouldn't be so free and, uh, (laughs) and willing to, put herself out there the way that, do you understand what I'm saying? Like it, it, it's kind of a difficult part of the book to, un, to grapple with, un, unravel. Because the difficulty is because he himself, I think had difficulty defining what the gender roles were outside of the men. And I mean, like I said, at that time, because remember this, I mean, this is seven years after, after uh, Tiananmen Square, the eighties was a, strange time for China. I think that Peter was seeing China 
in the nineties, as it was emerging from a, from a, from a strange eighties that was dealing with the loss of Mao and all that. So I think that he's even saying, I don't know. I mean, again, he even said everything's out of step, you know, I mean, even the gender roles and everything's changing. And so everything's up in the air that you prostitutes shouldn't be so comforting to men and you empowered women. You, you shouldn't, you should be more free like her. And it's just sort of like you said. And I think that that's because those two roles are, are too polarized in both situations and, and on both. And we don't accept extremes on any, any end. You know, it, you, you, you could be too conservative. You can be too, too liberal. You can be too much of either thing because there are consequences to these and we should be in the middle. But, but who is he seeing who, what female character, what female influence it was there in the book that was, that was right in between, right in the middle. Um, I mean, his students were the closest thing to it more than likely. And that's because they had yet to have been assigned by society what their role is. Maybe they were too young still, because as a student, you're still, you're still, you're still just coming of age. It's a possibility. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to spend more time thinking about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe reading conversation. The parts of- yeah, <laughs> it, because there's even there's even some of that tension with some of his male students, where you know he's talking about like, you know, I and I can't remember the student's name, but there's at least one story in the book where he's talking about this one male student who doesn't really seem to fit in or something, and he's trying to yeah. figure out like you know, what to do for that student and the, the stories of ASAP to me, but I just remember reading and going like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you want to help that, that person figure out who they are as a person. Where was the, okay. So it was the one where they were uh, reciting. I think it was the one where they were doing Hamlet. And in fact, he was Hamlet, yes. was he not? Yes. And he said, so I'm going to find the part in the book where there was the Hamlet. It's okay. a Barber, a nervous, misnamed boy in thick glasses and a cheap tan suit. No, no, that's and Hamlet played by Barber, but it's not the one. It may have been, but I don't think it was. Um, starting page 47 was where he's having the conversation about we studied Hamlet in October when the weather was still warm. Okay, so let's talk to the characters. There's Barber, Jane. Um, Saudi, the class monitor. It's not him. I think it's maybe on page 49. Um, the, the student's name is um, Saudi, maybe? Saudi, yeah. Uh, let's see. He was a big kid with a lazy eye from the countryside of northern Sichuan, and the other students called him Lao Da, Big Brother, a nickname from a Hong Kong gangster films, a term of respect that reflected Saudi's authority. But despite his high position in the class hierarchy, he was a relatively poor student. His writing was fine, but his spoken English was bad, and he had no confidence in class. Um, you know, it goes on. He's talking about all this stuff. And then on the next page, you know, he's playing Hamlet. Um, 
He was Hamlet and he was Lauda. There was no longer any question. The students watched with rapt attention and at the end they applauded madly. For the rest of the year, whenever I looked at Sadi, at his square jaw and his cockeyed gaze and his dark peasant complexion, I saw the Prince of Denmark. That was exactly what Hamlet would have looked like standing in the countryside of Sichuan province. Perfect. It's perfect. That is perfect. Yeah. And I, I, I don't recall the, the discussion of a lot of the other plays or literature being, being described quite as well as when they did Hamlet and everything he described about the characters and how it was set up. And uh, plus the irony of doing Hamlet now the school would not have approved had they known, you know, or whatnot. Um, so I just, I really enjoyed in that, that part of the book as well. And it's funny because that part doesn't stand out to me, obviously 17, 18 years ago. Um, everything about the river did more than, more than anything because the river yeah. was, of course, it's funny. It gives the people there sort of purpose and personality, but the river itself also is just, it's the force throughout in the book that he mentions it so many times and talks about it. It's flowing upstream, downstream, all the different parts that he mentions is this, again, it's this passing of time, it's change, but it's the same. It's still water. It's the same substance, but it's different each time. It's never the same. And um, I think it really, it, and I, I don't know, I'm, it just, I go back to, I'm trying to think about who it was. I believe it was, um, who was it that said you could never step and step in the same river twice? Yeah. You can't dip your toe in the same river twice. Yeah. I don't that's know right. who said it, but I know the quote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's river town. I mean, it was the Yangtze river, the Wu river. It's, it's changing. China's changing this place. And especially is never going to be the same because it's going to be flooded by the three gorges and it will be forever gone. And there are parts of this that we'll never see again. There are temples that will disappear. There's the rock with the, the fish where they measured the, the height for centuries and it's gone. Yeah. Uh, I know. mean, I'm glad you brought up the river because of course that's the subtitle of the book, two years on the Yancey, you know, um, I thought all as a book, there's beautiful nature writing in this book when he yeah. talks particularly about the rivers and the mountains and on page uh, 126, when he's taught earlier, you had mentioned that like, you know, nature becomes a part of the story um, or it, like their characters in the book. And I completely agree with that. Um, and particularly these two rivers. So to your point about like, things are always changing you know, where are we coming from? Where are we going? On page 126, this quote is just perfect for that. All rivers have personalities. The Wu, clear, green, lightly traveled, comes from the mountains. One river is all about origin, the other destination. Oh, yeah. The Yancey in its size and majesty seems to be going somewhere important, while the Wu in its narrow swiftness seems to have come from someplace wild and mysterious and the faint forms of its distant hills suggest that the river will keep its secrets. That is one of the best quotes in the book for me because mm. it speaks to the theme 
I also love the way that he talks about when the Wu River meets the Yangtze and how like the different colors. Yes. You know, like the Wu is this kind of green, clear river and the Yangtze is this muddy, messy, murky kind of thing. And it's just perfect to see in that visual image where he describes the green meeting the brown, exactly what you're talking about. Like we have a history, we have a place that we came from. We're also going someplace else. So the river as metaphor in the book is very, very powerful. Very, very strong. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, there's no doubt that that one was, you know, we could talk a lot about whether he's using the literature, whether he's using gender or whether he's using class or whatever he's using, but definitely without a doubt, the river as a metaphor, you're right, is clear throughout and it's strange because uh, we don't think much about, we, we think about the mighty Mississippi, right? But name another river that has as much influence in the United States as the Mississippi. <laughs> no, right. And I mean, I teach Texas history and I can think of the Colorado, the Brazos, the Trinity, the Natchez, the San Jacinto, the San Antonio, the Pecos, any one of the Canadian, the Rio, the red, it doesn't matter. None of them have the same meaning. Maybe the Rio because of its border, between Mexico, but that's more of a modern time thing. It didn't matter as much back at the time when, when Mexico and Texas were one and the same and it was crossing, but this, in this case it does. And the Yangtze, I lived on the Yangtze for four years and I could tell you it is a muddy, it is a murky, murky river. And yes, it's all about going somewhere. It is the river of business. It ends in the port in Shanghai. It mm-hmm. dumps out into the sea, the, the Ch- South China Sea, and um, it's, uh, it's a busy, busy place and has so many different things. And it travels throughout the entire uh, country of China versus I also lived down, I told you, near the border of Vietnam with the Li River, the Lijiang. And that's a totally different river, just like the Wu. It's mysterious. It's sort of more still. There are fishermen on bamboo boats still using those birds to hunt the fish for them. It's, it is a, it, the people that swim in it. I don't see anybody swimming in the Yangtze river. (laughs) So it's kind of like I I can, I can actually uh, support what he says about this and just say, yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, that's exactly right. Just like the the signs of modernity, you know, the demand for these Nalgene bottles, you know, he talked about how (laughs) this became a status symbol to have these Nalgene bottles, you know, it's like, yeah, because it's this, space age material this modern i have one i'm special i'm rich i have you know i've reached i've reached the the epicenter of of success and respect because i have a nalgene bottle you know it's it's sort of like yeah that's (laughs) you know that's that's just all part of it all of this throughout this the same thing and you can flip through the pages of this book pick out a page and you will remember the stories that he told you know it stands out Oh yeah. I remember Peter talking about this. I remember, Oh yeah. I remember the importance of this. And I feel like you could, you could talk about this book for days and days on end. And yet, as you mentioned, I mean, you're a well-read person. You have lots of books. You want to understand how reading, how people come about their reading, how people, the relationship and, and, and building a web of, of, of basically readers together to discuss and to, to maybe even inspire or to just examine. And yet Rivertown is one of those books that's just never really, you know, you don't hear about. And he's a, uh, 
he's a writer for Newsweek, I believe, was was his um uh, is the New York Times, uh, let's see, the New York the New Wall Street Yorker. Journal, the New, New York Yorker. Times, Boston Globe, and Atlantic Monthly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, big time. He's a big writer. You know, he's not. Oh yeah, know. I ordered. I ordered another one of his books because I found this book so well written and so, you know, like I, it's, it's a 400 page book. I read it in two days. It's not a hard read. Wow. Um, it's, it's so captivating. And uh, like you said, we could go on for another three hours. I mean, we, there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover, but yeah, I, I did order one of his other books that talks about, uh, you know, dispatches from the East and the West. Yeah. Cause I'm interested in this, in this kind of like, you know, the way that we've set up this false dichotomy between the East and the West. And then I've put into my to be read list, which is growing every day. <sighs> uh, this book, I guess what he's doing now is he has recently written a book about the Egyptian revolution and the, the changes that are going on in Egypt, him and his family moved to Egypt and he decided to learn Arabic and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm really fascinated by his body of work because it seems like what he's doing is he's, he's trying to go to places that are going through drastic changes and to catalog or to tell the story to Western audiences in a way that I think is, I don't know exactly the word that I'm using here, but in a way that challenges the view that you would probably have of that society. Um, that's what Rivertown did for me. Uh, it made me intensely interested in learning, filling in the gaps of my own knowledge about China. And so I think that that's kind of Hessler's project. Interesting. It's, and, I'm, and I'm really interested in hearing your response to that, how it made you want to, I think he did his job in sparking an interest in, like you said, lighting a fire. It says, huh, I want to know more about that. And I think that as educators, we're especially fascinated by change. We're change agents in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should be trying to inspire, whether it's changing from a norm to something, um, a normal that goes against a bad tide or whether it's just changing someone from the ledge back into a, a place of comfort or the most obvious one being change, obviously from ignorance to intelligence, you know, that's what we're trying to do is bridge that become the bridge between that. And so, um, yeah, there's this, there's just a, I well, think I'm, change is, yeah. So go ahead, finish your thought. No, I've, I, I was finished. I just was, I was change. Change seems to be a theme, like you said, and change is important. And it's especially important from our perspective. It's a, to see, you know. Yeah. And like what I was going to say was, you know, when I set out on doing this podcast project, the entire goal, aside from like connecting people and trying to bring books into conversation and stuff was just that you know, I am interested in people's reading lives. I'm also interested in like what people read and, you know, thank you, Mike, for telling me about Rivertown for, you know, conversing with me about this book. It has completely enamored me. I am fascinated to learn more about this part of the world. 
um, in addition to Hessler's books, I added, you know, a bunch of Chinese literature books to my, uh, you know, to be read list and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and I, and I will at some point get to all of that, but this yeah. it's, it's so it's, it's just so life fulfilling to be able to expand our horizons. Like you were talking about at the beginning, you know, you walked into the rare books room Hessler's book seems like a rare book, and I hope that other people will read it, um, even for just capturing a very particular moment in the transformation of China, which is, you know, this 90s to early 2000s period. It's obviously very different now if you went back, but um, it's, a, it's, it's an excellent book. I really thoroughly enjoyed it so much. I'm really glad you did. It is a snapshot in a fascinating period. And we didn't get to experience the Industrial Revolution ourselves, obviously. So for us, I mean, of sorts, I guess the information age is what we experienced. And we saw how much that changed. But to get to see in China, them go through that and through the eyes of someone who, as we mentioned, tried his best to and did a, a good job of, of bringing a lot of issues to the forefront and, and trying to define it from... Uh, with Chinese characteristics, <laughs> with you Chinese know, characteristics, with that's Chinese right. characteristics, and I, I actually, I, I think I'm fascinated with what you're doing here on this podcast too. I thought it was really cool. I, I was listening to uh, to Rick's uh, podcast, and I was, I've, I've been picking up pieces here and there uh, as I've had a chance to do it. And I thought it was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun to listen to. I think you have a great project going here. Like I said, I was fascinated by how you did this, and um. I think it's a really cool idea. I wish more people did it so that there's, you know, a, you talk about a web, but just keep spinning that web. So that web keeps getting, so we're having discussions and we're all leading to better understanding and becoming better change agents. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think this is a good place to stop our conversation. Um, I, again, I really appreciate you taking time out uh, to do this. Uh, in a few weeks, I'll have an edited version of this pulled together. Yeah. Um, and of course, I'll let you know when it's posted. Um, and I hope we keep in touch. We're good friends now, you know, like we'll talk books some more at some point in the future. Yeah, let's talk about when you've had a chance to at least if you've had a chance to browse a little bit of Hessler's other book, I'd love to hear some thoughts about that. I have that on the bookshelf behind me and and uh, maybe maybe we get a chance. But I, I certainly appreciate you having me on, allowing me to do this, too, because this is a book that changed my life. And so getting to talk about it is uh, is uh, is fun and meaningful, very, very meaningful for me. I've never had a chance to talk about this book with someone and to get to do it with you was was extra special because you have a great insight and your experience and knowledge in the field of education, literature, and all that is, you know, if I was talking about it with, uh, you know, just my best bud, it probably wouldn't have the same meaning. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. I really appreciate that so much. Yeah. I appreciate you, Pete. Yeah. No problem. <laughs>